May I welcome you to episode 24 of Moving Matters. I am your host, Colin Wynn. I hope Moving Matters will give you an insight into others working or have worked in this wonderful industry as I delve into their past, their present and their future. You will find a new episode of Moving Matters on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. In this episode, we discover my guest is rumoured to have been born in a tea chest back in 1946. We discuss how he began in the industry working for the family business from the tender age of 16, before a change in circumstances saw him purchase a removal company in 1981, which he took into Pelican and then into Britannia Movers International. We also discuss his challenges, what he would change from his past, his high points, and he has many, many some of you may not be aware of. The one thing he would change within the industry, where he sees himself in the industry in five years' time, his collection of model trucks, and he has a keen interest in local politics. And as always, we end with not a funny, but a very charming, moving story. My guest this episode is David Trenchard, Chairman of Britannia Lever Barrows. Enjoy. Good morning, David. Welcome to Moving Matters. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying the sunshine. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You have a long-standing and distinguished career in the removals and storage industry. Can you tell everyone about yourself and the length of time within the industry? Well, sure. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's known I've been in it an awful long time. And uh, when I was introduced by uh, Peter Robinson as a, a candidate for presidency, he actually said he, he, there was a rumour that I'd been born in a tea chest. He wasn't far wrong. <laughs> um, my grandfather came out of World War One. He was a, a butcher, and he started up a, a little shop in uh, in Bournemouth, and uh, and had a pony and trap, and did a, a round from his shop. People started asking him to uh, to perhaps move the odd chest of drawers or take their luggage down to the station, this sort of thing. And within two or three years, he'd uh, moved on to a Model T Ford uh, with a lift-off body, and Time goes on, and he had a removal van in about 1926, so one of the first of the removal vans around in Bournemouth. His two sons joined him in the business, and of course World War II came along, and they were both called up, and Grandad was, uh, was running the business by himself with whoever he could get, and my mother joined him to help him with the admin. And in 1945, my dad had been a prisoner of war. He was released and came home. In 1946, his life was ruined because I was born. And uh, <laughs> I, I was born on the actual property over the shop. And we had the previous stables at the side of the house and the vans were parked in a big yard behind. So I was actually, from a small child, brought up, surrounded by trucks, and meeting men all times of day and night coming and going. When I was in my sort of 10, 11, 12, I was out there with my saw and plywood, cutting up corners and strengthening tea chests by putting uh, corners on them and taking the tin off and earning a bob of tea chest for every one that I did and then stenciled <laughs> the name of the company on one on, on the on the sides that weren't too covered with tea markings. Wow. And basically that's where I started in the business and my dad would have me out um helping him reload a truck or unload something into the warehouse. And so when, when it came time for me to leave school, I left school and uh, I went straight into the business and uh, uh, I, I joined when I was to, just before I was 16. Can you tell everyone about your company and the services it offers today? Well, today's company is uh, Leather Barrows. Diane and I bought it in 1981. It was at the time based in Hounslow in West London, owned by Aubrey Appleton. Uh, Aubrey yeah. was intending to leave Bullens and go to uh, Leather Barrows, and that was where he was going to move his career. And the owners of Bullens uh, made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And one of the conditions was he had to sell Leather Barrows immediately. Well, it coincided when I was looking for something immediately. And Diane and I bought it, and uh, we developed it in, in London and in Bournemouth using the name and the BAR membership, obviously. I was already at that time involved in the Overseas Group Council. We were doing shipping all over the world. We were doing European work. I put a hold on that when I went to Leather Barrows because the trucks were older and 
we didn't really have the experienced staff to do the packing and shipping that I wanted to do. So I left it until I could build up the staff again and recruit and train and get some newer trucks that could do the European work. And gradually we did that. And for the last 30 years, we've been operating regular, almost weekly to Spain with our road trains. And we joined, strangely enough, it's 40 years this year since we bought uh, Leather Barrows. And it's the same length of time that Britannia has been in business. Now, when I started, Diane and I took the business into Pelican, which I'd previously been involved with various friends in the industry. Some of the big players in Pelican decided to leave and, and, and do their own route. And as a result of that, we had a decision. We either went out and recruited new members or we offered ourselves to Britannia to merge with Britannia. And that's what we did. We merged what was left of the original Pelican group with Britannia, which created a much stronger group with some strong companies that went in with some good international volumes. So since 1987, we've been a member of Britannia, so our trucks are painted in Britannia. In 1988, I was able to buy part of the family business uh, when my, uh, my my father decided to sell part of it to me. Uh, I also took over Sketchley's. That's a name from the past. Well, they, they'd actually bought Lloyd Armashaw's business. Yeah. And uh, Lloyd had gone out of the business in, and, and sold up. It was quite a big business. It, it was uh, two warehouses full of storage containers uh, and Andover and Wareham. And um, so I took over, uh, in 1988, I took over the Sketchley's business. They'd gone in, decided removals wasn't for them, uh, and sold up. So I virtually doubled my business when I took that over. And, and we had branches across from London down to Wareham. I eventually moved into Bournemouth Airport and, and took over a hangar, half a hangar. And uh, that's been where I've been running my business since, since 1982. And we gradually merged everything into there except that we kept the Andover premises which is now Vale and David self store as well as uh, Britannia Leather Barrow's um, office and um, Vale and David is an amalgam of, of my first name obviously um, with my son-in-law Darren Vale and my daughter Sarah Vale because it's them now that actually run the business both businesses right what challenges have you had to overcome well, challenges of starting, when I bought Leather Barrows, uh, I had no money at all. I just had a mortgage on the house. Diane did the accounts and uh, I ran the business. And I never left Bournemouth, although I used to sleep on the floor of the office in Hounslow and uh, stay with a friend nearby. And later on, we had a caravan and I used to tow my caravan up and park it in the yard and, and live with <laughs> that. We built the business up in London and we had it from the October and the following March, I was actually offered a contract with our local departmental store group. I had been talking to them before. They made a decision to outsource their warehousing and deliveries, which was what I'd been offering them. Having seen how this contract worked with the firm in Germany when we'd been on a BAR study tour, right. and I'd taken that idea to them uh, and shown them how it worked because we, we actually eventually did a contract that was based upon the retail sale value of the goods on the customer's invoice. And we worked on a percentage of that. So all our costs had to be contained within that and our profit. Uh, and we received the goods from the manufacturer, um, stored them for up to six weeks, delivered them to the customer and took responsibility for their condition. And I held that contract for 39 years. Oh, wow. And the, the departmental store group actually went into administration late in 2019 and so i had that contract for all those years that's a long time to have a contract it is very very long time originally it was for four vehicles every day and a whole warehouse but towards the end it started shrinking because obviously that the market the last three or four years weren't anywhere near as good and we actually got rid of the warehouse at wareham and moved it all into our our christchurch warehouse and ran it all from there. If you could change anything from your past, what would it be? I think, looking back, I don't think I would change anything at all because the traumatic experience I had of, of leaving the family business and, 
and buying leather barrows. I didn't like it, but in fact, it actually gave me much better opportunity than I would have had. And so I, I, I wouldn't change anything at all. Then what is your high point of being in the industry? And I'm sure we're going to have many high points here, David. Well, I could I could list loads, but I, I suppose really in, in 1992, I eventually became president. And yep. I, I was president for a year. And it was the actual year that um, the borders came down in Europe and we could go without needing customs documentation from January the 1st, halfway through my year of office. And so the, the conference that I organised was in the um, Bournemouth International Centre. We had an indoor exhibition. And with my experience on Bournemouth Council, I had actually been the chairman of the centre when it was built. I was leader of the council when it was open. And I'd only left the council about uh, a year and a half before. And I was able to get a lot of sponsorship for the use of the centre and it was a, a it was a very very good conference we had speakers from europe talking about what would happen when the barriers came down i was grateful for several of my european colleagues to come to the conference we had a, a really good time and that was probably my high point um it was great to have my own kids at the conference and and all my staff it was terrific I remember that conference because that was my first ever BAR conference and we were one of the exhibitors at that time. Good so Lord. I remember that conference. And I have been to the BIC many, many times to watch concerts. It's a fantastic place. Absolutely fantastic. So you see my name on the plaque in the entrance hall. Then. As you go through the doors. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about some of your other high points. There are several on here on the notes you kindly gave me. Obviously, bar services is one. And as, as we discussed earlier, off the record, I found out that that came from a study tour. Yes. I didn't go to university or have further education. I did a part-time course on Monday evenings at local college, a little bit of business studies and economics and how to write letters, uh, which I found useful, and how to, how to read a balance sheet. And uh, the BAR organized some interesting training courses in those days, and, and they did study tours. And I went on the first one to the USA, uh, led by Michael Gerson. There was about 34 or five of us on the trip. I found it fascinating to see how another country with different cultures and different distances between towns and cities and how the van line worked. I found it all fascinating. But what I did find interesting was to see how these companies all managed to have uh, standardized packing materials, lovely printing with all the company's names over everything. In this country, the only time you saw the company's name was on the side of the van, on their aprons, uh, and on any paperwork that went out of the way of job sheets and, and invoices. We didn't have very much in the way of publicity. I couldn't get over all this. Everything's printed and. Uh, and, and it was good quality stuff. So when we came back, we, we talked about this. We, there were, I was on another course with um, some of the guys involved in that. We were at Leicester, Leicester Polytechnic. And it was six weekends, again, doing uh, interesting stuff with really good people. A chap called Cyril Batty organized it. There was uh, uh, marketing and finance. And for those of us that humble removal men, we were learning a lot. On, on that course, there was people like Joe Luxford, who became a great friend. And uh, and also I'd met Derek Blatchford on the trip to America and Joe. And uh, then we had another trip. We went to Europe. This is another study tour. We went to see the French Removals Association in Paris and the, the German Removals Association. Again, very impressed with all the printed cartons and materials that are made for the job in this country. We used T-chess and uh, players' cartons were very good. They were like metal, a wooden frame with thick cardboard. We used those. But we didn't have things that were specially made for the removals industry. We used what we could get elsewhere. Some of the big firms like Harrods had their own packing cases made for prime jobs, but the rest of us didn't. Other than people like Michael Gerst, who was already building his own image and name up by buying in quantity direct from suppliers, but you needed to buy something like about 
10 or 20,000 cartons to get them printed. And right. a small firm, you know, small firms had no yeah. chance. Pickfords could yeah. do it, but small firms had no chance. So the three of us, that was Derek Blatchford, Joe Luxford and myself, we persuaded and others, BAR, to set up a study group to look at such things that the industry could benefit from, that BAR could benefit from, without putting any more charges on the membership fee because people felt that the membership fee was enough. They didn't want to be paying for other things. So we actually had a study group looked in depth at quite a few things, some things we didn't proceed with. Derek came up with a good deal of discounts off of vehicle chassis, which we did. We also redesigned the membership book. Previously, it never earned any money at all. We redesigned it in a way that self-sufficient. And until recently, you know, when we've now got internet, etc., it actually made a profit every year. Now, that was one of our pluses. And we, we decided to set up a, a cooperative or buying group. So in 1985, Bar Services was born. And right. we needed money to put into it. We needed somebody to get it off the ground. PAR wasn't interested. We went to the board. And so we said, look, this is too good. We can't let this go. So Joe Luxford, Derek Blatchford and myself, we made it work. We formed a board. We put our reputations and our own money behind it, basically, is what happened. Hugh Wilson was the general secretary at the time. And Hugh and I had one share each to get the the company we founded. And uh, then we went out and recruited somebody to be the uh, to manage it and to buy goods and sell them. And we recruited Tony Allen. Right. And after about two years, we were just getting off the ground, he left because he'd been offered a job in the paper industry and he went off to do that. So we then had to go through the process of recruiting somebody else. He didn't leave us in the lurch. His wife ran it for a little while whilst he was doing his other job. And uh, it wasn't very big in those days, just starting out with just a few cartons and things that we advertised in the Telegraph and whatnot. We were shortlisted who we were going to have to run it. And then suddenly there was a knock on the door. Tony didn't like the job he'd gone to. And he, on reflection, would like to come back and run bar services. So on the basis that we knew he understood what we wanted, we reappointed him. And uh, the contract we entered into, this is something that people never quite understood. We decided that we didn't want to give him a contract with the salary and the rest of it. He, he didn't have anything like that. His company managed bar services for us, but we paid him a percentage of the sales value of the goods that were supplied. So he had to get the price down and the quality right in order to yep. supply it to our members. We dictated quality. So he had to get the price right, and he lived on a percentage of the price. And that worked again for, oh, 30, 40 years. And that was only changed, I think, when Mr. Vickers became General right. Secretary. I remember I was chairman of bar services for the first 15 years whilst we built <laughs> it up. And then I became president and uh, I gave it up when I became president. But I stayed on the board for 35 years in total. And uh, I retired after 35 years. That was actually Mr. Vickers insisted upon that. He told me if I wanted to become an honorary member of BAR, I'd have to give up all my positions. Wow. So, so I did. Uh, one of the last I gave up was uh, area treasurer that I'd also done for donkey's years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's a rule he must have invented because, I mean, I've been involved in BAR for years. That never, ever applied. And there's loads of people now that that doesn't apply to, but he invented it. But you have so much experience to give. Well, you know, no, I, I... well yeah, but I've given it. I'd given it. They didn't but want you still you can still give it. You still... They didn't want us. They they said it was an old boys club and they wanted to get us out. So I was quite happy. I'd done a lot and I was happy to leave. Anyway, um they gave me a <laughs> they gave me a very nice parting gift, a, a watch and uh, in the garden I've got a sheep, full size sheep. <laughs> um, that's bars. <laughs> love it. It is it's in, the, love it's, in it. back, it's in the back garden. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a, a cartoon on the on the wall of the uh, of the study here. But uh, I enjoyed all the time I was doing that. Yeah, you know, for many years I wrote the minutes and 
Yeah. It was a big job. Where our services came from study tours. We haven't had study tours for a while. Can we get study tours going again at all, do you think? I think it's worth doing, but I think that we've got to get these youngsters learning. And I must admit, I really admire what Rob Bartup and Ian Palmer have done with the uh, these special weeks of management training that they do in yes. the autumn. That yep. goes back to how it was when I was a kid. And yep. uh, I've had all my management have been through that and they've gained it. And Britannia has actually had a, a scholarship to pay for anybody in the Britannia group who would like to go and can't really afford it. And, right. and, and we support it. Yeah, I would like to do Robert Bartlett's management course, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah you're right about the study tours, but I, I think we're inclined to underestimate ourselves in this country. And yeah. I think that our trade association is, even though things have been knocked in recent years, is still one of the strongest ones. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So another one of your high points. I was involved in this because I was, well, I, not me personally, but the company I was working for at the time was involved in it because we were the one of the original six to field trial it. BSEN. Everybody forgets that, Colin. The one, two, five, double two. Everybody forgets that, don't they? No, they can't forget it. The BSEN is brilliant addition to the removal industry. I'm sorry, but I just think it is. Can I tell you that I've always been interested in standards? And when yep. I was first involved years ago, back in the 1970s, I asked the question, what does a BAR removal consist of that sets it apart from everybody else's removal service? We had quite a big debate in area meetings at a time. What could we say? You know, so many wrappers per 100 cubic foot and, and uh, yep. what quality packer material. That's all I've ever been involved in is to try and create the quality, which is to be our services to have the special packing material that stacks properly in the vehicle or matches and will be as good when it gets to Australia as it was when it left the customer's house. That's all I've been involved in. And in 1992, 93, when I left BAR as, as president, our friends in France had created a quality standard for removals and had recommended it as a European standard, their French standard. Yep. And the the way this worked was they had to have, it then goes to CEN, the Centre of European Norms, which is based right. in Brussels, which has got nothing to do with the European Union at all, but it, it comprises quite a lot of countries within Europe, not just those in European community, even though it's grown now and it's even bigger. It was, it was a lot more countries. So the French had recommended it to Sen. Sen, first of all, contacted the various British Standards Institute in the UK and the Equipment Standards Institute around Europe to ask if there was an appetite to, to actually work on this project. And uh, we, we were asked in, in the UK, British Standards Institute didn't know anything about removals at all. There hadn't been a standard for a service before. It was only ever for products. Right, I see. So there was a question asked. And first of all, it came to the board of BAR, and we all looked at each other and said, well, yeah, it's a good idea, but who's going to do this? You know, what do we do? How do we do it? How do we go about it? There's no experience. Nobody knows anything. So I'm always game for a challenge, and I just finished on the council. <laughs> I finished on the council just before I, I did my 22 years on the council and I decided I did my presidency and I thought, well, I don't mind. I'll have a go. I said, well, I'll volunteer. I'll have a, I'll have a go because I'm really keen on standards. So I, I, I hauled Brian Mitchell off who was, oh, I don't know what I want to do with that, you know. So we hauled <laughs> it off and went to see the British Standards Institute in London to find out what it was all about and how we went about it and how – how did anybody represent the British rules industry? So we're sat in the room, and uh, first of all, these these old guys came in who who sort of I don't know who they were, the sort of senior managers, I suppose, and said, "Well, look, we we can't put any money into it. We got no budget." We said, "No, right, we can't do that, and uh, we can't afford to put set up a committee. And you've got to have a shadow committee for whatever goes on in this in this working." But there is a solution to that. We can appoint a committee 
and we could appoint a trade association to run the committee as as our representative. And we said, well, yeah, all right, then we, we, we could do that. We can manage a committee, you know, if you tell us what we've got to do. We don't know how to tell you. We, we haven't got much advice, you know. Anyway, we've got to be convinced that the trade association represents the industry. And we said, well, we do that. They said, well, how can you prove it? I've never been one, as you've seen me at meetings, I've never been short of an answer. <laughs> on the spot. And I said, well, I, I think you can say we represent over 70% of the removal contractors who are professional in this country who've got four vans or more. Yep. The four vans or more just came out of the... No, <laughs> no data to to, 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 to to support it at all. It's all that's, that's very good. That would be enough. Yes, we use that data. And uh, so, you, you know, you're 70% of four vans or more. Yes, you're, you're therefore the professional removal association that we'll use. So they appointed us to be the secretary, Brian to be the secretary, and me to be the removal expert. So Excellent. I became the removal expert for this committee appointed by BSI. So um, off we go then, and I get sent to um, Denmark for the first one of these meetings. And there was a, the, um, the organisation that set it up in, that ran it for SEN, was the Danish Standards Institute based in Copenhagen. And they provided the secretary doing the work. And it was Technical Committee 320, and we became Working Group 4. And that Technical Committee dealt with all transport matters. So right. they, were, they were dealing with heavy haulage and all sorts of other things as well. But the thing is that we then met over several years under the chairmanship that one of the, the French guys are. And towards the end, they're ready to go with it. And we've been sending stuff off to BSI and asking them for help. Is this the right wording? Is this because I was English, the thing's written in three languages. I was the English expert on this committee because there was no other. <laughs> we were England there. We were meeting representatives all over Europe, removal companies and these various standards institutes, Austrian, Swiss, German, French. But the BSI people, I had to go and see them before getting towards the end. And I, for once, met somebody who was very helpful, a chap called Brian Such. He was also very helpful to um, TransEuro on their their warehouse standard for the fire. Ah, uh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he knew a little bit because he'd been working with Chris Weymouth. And he helped me rewrite the whole thing. Right. And I went to, after we've been about seven years, I suddenly appeared at this meeting with a completely rewritten standard that he and I had sat down and rewritten from all the drafts we had. And they immediately pounced upon it and knocked it into a bit more shape. And that was published, I think, 1998. So it was about seven years. And it was published in 1998. And, and my company put it in. Luxford's put it in. Lanes of Cornwall put it in, and we, we ran it, and you, you did some work on it uh, in order to make it work. There was a lot of effort, and it was, it's more difficult than I'm trying to explain to you now because nobody knew what they were doing. <laughs> it's a great standard, and it's just excelled. I mean, you've got the other standards as well now, and, and QSS, so QSS has been formed. Well, you see, the Fenimac was all part of this. You know, the, the, Obviously, a lot of the Fenimac people were involved. And, in Europe, in Fenimac, we discussed it. We said, do we want to have outside people doing the assessments and the certification? And uh, there's all these very professional organisations that do this. Most of them have got big offices and city centres and things and consultants that get paid vast sums of money, lots of administration costs. And we said, well, this is ridiculous because they'll come to a removal company. They won't know anything about a removal service because they'll have been used to doing products. So uh, the rest of Europe said, no, we're not going to do anything about it. We'll use the, the outsiders. But we at PAR decided, to, I must say it was, it was my leadership, we decided we would use the chat, the talent we had of retired removal managers to get them trained up to become assessors and certificators Absolutely. and whatnot. And uh, we had some very good help. Uh, Nick Bracken, if you yep. remember, used to be the field yep. officer, well, he was a qualified assessor. So he actually became the first manager of QSS. And he, he set it up. And, and now he was followed by 
Julie Thompson, who also was a qualified assessor. And uh, and then when she retired from BAR and went off, we then had to find somebody else and we recruited Chris Weymouth. I was chairman of QSS throughout all that period. Mm. And, uh, and, and one of the things that I insisted on and other people on the board with me at the time was he, we insisted on the, the organisation being certified with ACAS. Yeah. Because if you weren't, you really were just an organisation that inspected people. But yeah, by yeah. having that annual assessment from them and certification, it gives you a lot of kudos. Yeah. And so our QSS is actually stands head and shoulders above a lot of other similar organisations uh, and is on an equal footing uh, with all the others. So people are getting a very cheap service when they get QSS because QSS keeps its costs right down, low admin, sharing offices with BAR. It's independent from BAR. It's, it can't be part of it. It's independent. I, I, I'm very proud of QSS. And being independent, just so our listeners realise, you don't have to be a BAR member oh, to no. get the BSEN, do you? No. So they can they can still go to QSS and apply to get the standards. A they lot, do not have to be a BAR a lot member. Do. A lot, but they, we and like they do other standards as well, all member. sorts of standards yeah. now. I mean, shredding and... Uh, oh, the list just grows. There's loads of standards they can, yeah. they can certify now. I, I, I stayed on in that TC320 for a bit longer. I became the convener of the standard for the... 14873, which is the um, which is the storage standard. Yeah, I became yeah. the convener and actually dealt with that right through to publication. Yeah, during that period, I'd offered the commercial group that we would do a standard with them, but they actually refused and said they didn't want it. And then the council changed dramatically, and there's a lot of new people on there. Then they came back and said we do want it. So it's not a European standard though. The commercial standard is actually only a, a British standard. Yeah. Um, but I sat in with Chris Weymouth and we sat in with them and helped them design that standard and develop it and publish it. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted that they've got that as their requirement for membership, as have the overseas group got their standard. I'm just very upset, really, that BAR has never adopted 12522 and, and instead has their own standard, which is a long way short of that. So actually pointless having two standards. Yeah, and, and hopefully that will change in, in, in time. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, but uh, you've, you've answered that one already. <laughs> every year, I completely agree with you. I mean, every, it should be part of the membership yeah. criteria. Every year I raise it at the AGM. Yeah. Good. <laughs> and, and keep raising it, David. Keep raising it. It should form part of it. So what one thing would you change within the moving industry? Well, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might be the answer. That's so, it. And, and the other thing is, I think it's appalling that the government in 1987, when the Transport Act came in, they took away operator, or they brought operator's license in its current form in. Yeah. That they left this big grey area of the low weight vehicles, which they, yeah, yeah. at the time, they said. They had to abide by driver's hours regulations, um, but they didn't include it in the wording and they didn't make them have to have tachographs. And these guys, they break the law. Their vehicles are overloaded every day. And I think it's absolutely appalling. They drive everywhere. They work seven days a week. Th those laws are put in to protect employees' rights and to protect the other road users uh, and to protect customers so that they're only dealing with professional companies. Sadly, anybody can call themselves a removal contractor, have a, an old bread van and write removals on the side with a mobile phone number, and uh, the public are gullible enough to, to go and use them. Well, yeah, I mean, even I could pop up a website tomorrow, call myself a removal company, put my mobile phone, and just pop down to my local van hire and hire a van with a tail lift, and I could be a removal man, but, you yeah. know. Sounds like too much hard work for me. I'd rather sit behind a desk and press keys on a keyboard. What advice would you give to yourself just starting out in the industry? I, I think I would, I would say if you believe in it, go with it. Follow your beliefs. Set out what you want to do. Have a plan and go with it. 
And don't be afraid to experiment probably as well. Oh, absolutely. Don't be afraid to experiment and don't be afraid to, to make yourself the odd one out. Absolutely. So where do you see yourself in the industry in the next five years? Now, you're chairman of Britannia Lever Barrows. So do you have much day-to-day -day involvement in it or do you just over oversee what's going on? Well, I, I give guidance. <laughs> I give guidance. In fact, in fact, I've told them if they feel I'm poking my nose in too much, they must tell me. Because I know what it was like when I was younger, when I was running the family business, and my dad used to come and change things I'd done and yeah. without knowing all the re repercussions that was going to bring. It was not like throwing a spanner in the works. I I've never wanted to do that, either with my management team or, or now with my son-in-law and daughter and, and their team now. I don't want to interfere, but I'll give them guidance. Yeah, I think one of the best things I've ever done was what I wanted to do in 1980 when I left the family business and went to Leather Barrows. What I wanted to do was to invest in D-mount bodies. And I'd seen them in Europe, I'd seen them operating, and I could see how they would really work in this country with the problems of keys and, yeah. and, and all the issues. In the end, in 2000, I was able to buy four. I bought four um, second-hand Scandias on air suspension, bought some um, D-mount bodies, CT bodies, and, and I was able to experiment properly with them. The four were road trains. I've renewed those, and uh, I think we've got six now. But what we can do with those, particularly on local removals in European, is incredible because I think we've got 28 bodies. Wow. We call it holdover, and you can actually load up a job on Monday and Tuesday and hold it for a day or two and deliver it at the end of the week, and it gives this customer a chance to get the key, clean up the new house, perhaps put the carpets down, and then have everything delivered it really doesn't cost us any more to do it. And we just charge them a, a slight fee for, for holding the bodies loaded for a couple of days. And that's a terrific service. And people who use that, um, and it gives you a lot more flexibility because when you've got busy times, you can spread things out a bit, use all the all the hours of the week rather than just the, the hours that customers want you. You can go and prepare and part load and do things on the mornings when you haven't got anything. And it, it really does work. And with European, there's very few jobs that you load up and go straight away. So very often we've got something loaded for a week before we put it on a road train with another body and off they go. And it gives you a lot more flexibility. There was a group of us in Britannia did it together. We went across to Europe. We did our own little study tour. We came back and we did it. Those same little group of people are still doing it today. I still can't understand why the others haven't joined us. Yeah, there are a few people doing it. One of my previous guests of two episodes ago, Richard Webster from Tonks Removals, who have got BAR membership now, they use demountables a lot as well. So he was talking about the benefits of it. So I completely hear where you're coming from. It is surprising that the industry hasn't really picked up on that. Well, a lot of people haven't got the yard space for it. And that's that's one of the problems. You've got to, you've got to have yard space and, or you've got to have an outside fork truck to be able to stack them in the yard. Yeah. Sanders says we've got an outside fork truck. Yeah. So where do you see the industry in the next five years? I think they've got to be a bit cleverer. I think they've got to they've got to train their staff. They've got to recruit youngsters, train them properly, and their drivers have got to be self-taught within the company from their own resources. You can't expect to pick up a, a guy who's been driving haulage lorries to do removals. The best ones we've always had have been our own self-taught. People have got to be prepared to invest in training and understand that they're going to have to kiss a few frogs before they get the princes and they're going to lose a few along the way. And, you know, you mustn't cry too much, but you must try and make sure you pick the winners and you pay them the right money. Don't try and pay for the money when they're leaving. Pay the money before they think about leaving and, uh, and charge the right prices. You've got to take that risk, haven't you? And take that porter that's doing really well and turn him into a driver and, yeah, and risk absolutely. that expenditure. And, and if they leave in two years' time, well, they've left. But you hopefully you would keep them in the company. But you've got to absolutely. invest in them. Well, I'm very proud. I, I can tell you this now. I've just got, I, I could show it to you, but I've got 
these little vans mounted. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that's a leather barrows van, really, with a little plaque at the bottom that you can see. Absolutely. That's one that was given to me by Fedimac when I ran a, a debate in Stuttgart some years ago, a very good debate in three languages. I have a stack of those in, the, in my study that I had done years ago in Britannia Leather Barrows Livery. I've got four staff who have just reached 25 years continuous service with the company. I've got four of them with the plaques on, already done, and I'll organise a presentation ceremony, and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to do it, but it'll be one of the local MPs probably who, who comes along and and, oh, I'll, nice. and we'll do a little presentation to them. Considering I've only been in business 40 years, I've had quite a lot of retired guys now and sadly deceased some of them who've done more than 25 years. Yeah. And, and we give them an extra week's holiday and really every year from now on, they appreciate it. It's, it's just their, their reward. And of course, they're so much more valuable to you than other staff because they're the guys who run your business. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Now, for our listeners, they obviously can't see what I can see. You have behind you, your bookcase as such is full of model trucks. How many do you have? It's well over 300. And these you've just accumulated over the years? Yeah. The very first one was on the first study tour when we went to Canada, and it's Hill Security. I, I thought, what a wonderful advertising tool. Yep. So wherever I've been, all over the world, since then, I've bought them. I've kept most of them. I've got the boxes for. But I've got, I mean, they're, they're fantastic. I, you, you don't see them very often now. It's, it's amazing. But uh, I've, got, I've got nearly 400 in here. Or you can't see them. All around, they're all around the top as well. Now and again, when I go into removal companies, they've got some in a in a wall cabinet and things like that, but nowhere near the amount that I can see behind you. I mean, I, I have two boxes upstairs in the loft that have got them in there, and I, I do have a very, very special Alton Moves one that I don't know whether you've got or not. Is, but... is, that, is that the three-axle one? No, no, this is, this is one that good old John McGinty did, and you know how John used to like his uh, goat on the side it's of got, his truck. It's got a goat on it, is it? It had the, it had the McGinty <laughs> goat on it, and he had them produced, and they unfortunately, they printed the goat the wrong way round. Yeah. So he, he still went ahead with the order, but ordered a load of other ones, but never actually released the originals, but I've no. got two of them. Well, I've never seen those, but McGinty's goat was a standing joke in the industry. Absolutely. Yeah. And John McGinty... I mean, those characters don't exist anymore. No, I mean, they don't. There he they was, he's chairman of Aldershot Football Club. And, absolutely. Uh, absolute character. Yeah. Charming man. Charming man. Miss him dearly. So what do you do outside of the industry to switch off then, David? Well, I've never lost my interest in local politics. Right. Uh, I stress local politics and obviously quite involved in what goes on around here. And when I retired... When I stood back from Leather Barrows, the full-time employee, a friend of mine from school, he was the leader of the Liberal group on the local council. I was leader of the Conservative group. We actually got together with a guy who ran a huge haulage company in Poole, and we set up a, an action group to try and improve local governance and local uh, councils around where we are here in Dorset. We had nine councils in Dorset, Dorset's a very small county. Bournemouth was the largest council by a long way, but Bournemouth is in the middle of a conurbation. Right. Paul is one side, Christchurch is the other. Nobody knows, except those who are really involved, where the actual boundaries are. Right. And uh, I knew, as having been leader of Bournemouth, how difficult it was trying to get some of the stuff done. And so we set up, the three of us, an organisation called Unite the Conurbation. And we had public meetings and started a lobby group and lobbied for councils of Dorset to drop from nine to two, one to run rural Dorset and one to run the conurbation. Right. As somebody said to me a couple of years ago, one of the guys, well, you're the only action group I've ever come across that's actually achieved anything. Because <laughs> two and a half years ago, there was an election. There was only two councils involved. And so now we have, BCP Council, an adventurous name they've chosen, <laughs> uh, which is Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul, which encompasses the conurbation. And we have Dorset Council, 
which is the rest of the county. And the savings were incredible. And they've come in at just the right time. But, I mean, you can't imagine how much they're saving. It's it's incredible. You know, Bournemouth, for example, we had three different taxi services. They couldn't pick up taxi fares in each other's towns. And they had three administrations and three different fare structures. We had the seafront was two lots of people cleaning it because it came under oh, two councils. You know, it's, it's just incredible. Dust collectors, you know, different companies. Now it's all one. And uh, anyway, we worked hard for that. And uh, that, that kept me going for seven years uh, <laughs> after I retired. Um, that was my main objective, and, uh, and we achieved it. David, you've achieved an awful lot. <laughs> you seriously have achieved an awful lot, whether it be for your council or whether it be for the BAR and well, the removal industry in general. You have achieved an awful lot. I've got a very good family as well. well they clearly support you. <laughs> and finally, I like to end my podcast with a funny moving story. Do you have one or more to tell? Well, I'm sure I can find several. But um, <laughs> I think what I'll tell you is, a, is it's not so much funny. It tells you that every experience you have is, is worth having and worth remembering. When I was working for my dad, and I wasn't very old, I, wasn't, I was about 17, so I wasn't the driver. He, he used to work for local furniture shops doing deliveries particularly during the winter in January when they had their sales and there weren't really many removals available. One of the local stores, we did the country round and it's because their own drivers didn't like it. And it was trying to find these places out in the middle of rural Dorset. And when, <laughs> in the days when we were doing it, there was no sat-nav, no GPS and very little in the way of maps. So you, you had to find these little villages and stuff out in the country in a restricted day in the winter you know, it's dark at four o'clock. It's, it was plenty hard work, I've got to say. Anyway, we, we were doing the deliveries. I had this particular driver who was working with me, and we um, and I used to do the paperwork, and he obviously drove the truck. And we had a delivery, and it was um, somebody who bought one of these kidney dressing tables. Now, people today perhaps don't know what they are, but it was like a white wood dressing table, hand-painted, yep. and yep. it had a curtain around it, and you had a, a, a kidney-shaped glass top and a triple mirror. And we had this delivery to, it was a manor house in the middle of rural Dorset. And uh, so we arrive at this place, open the big gates, and as you can see the manor house, long way down the gravel drive. So my mate uh, carrying the, the kidney dressing table, and I had the glass under one arm and the clipboard and the triple mirror under the other arm. And so off we set, and he shuts the gate and follows me on down the drive. And we're, oh, it's, it was about 150 yards and well over halfway. And all of a sudden there was this, this noise and this pack of dogs came hurtling around the corner of the house. They were these German things that are guard dogs. They weren't, they weren't sort of border collies or anything like that. These were these big brown Doberman things, whatever they are. Oh they word. came hurtling down this, this path towards us. My mate dropped the dressing table and ran, <laughs> and he ran. And luckily, these dogs, because he ran, they ran straight past me, and I was stood there <laughs> holding the, holding the, uh, the glass and the mirrors. And uh, anyway, he, he made it to the gate and over the top. You know, think it's so funny, really, but I wasn't funny because <laughs> I was still there. And there was about seven of these dogs, and they came round me, and they were making a hell of a din, growling and spittle everywhere. And I, I couldn't do anything. I was just stood there. So I just walked towards the door, and that's all I can do. And the lady comes out. Oh, she said, I'm ever so sorry. I knew you were coming today. I meant to lock the dogs away. I'm ever so sorry. Is everything all right? You know, is everything okay? And I said, yeah, it's all right. I've, I, I'm okay. They haven't bitten me, but they're all over me. But my mate's sort of cowering behind the gate. <laughs> anyway, so... She called out a gardener or somebody who came and fetched the dogs and put them away. It was an incident that one didn't forget, you know? Absolutely. Well, here we are now in the 1980s, and this is a good 25 years later, and I'm doing this contract I've told you about with the departmental store. Yeah. Group. 
And I suddenly get a phone call one day from my manager on that contract saying, uh, got a bit of a problem. One of the drivers has been badly bitten. I'm, I'm going to have to go out and take a replacement driver out for the truck and pick him up and take him to the hospital. And so he did it, changed everything around and we carried on. And I came back and then said, that, well, you better tell me exactly what happened. And so we're sitting there and he's got the delivery sheet. And it's the same address. <laughs> it's the same address. Wow. And the driver is actually, he's off for about three weeks. Really? He's a married man with kids and all the rest of it. Am I going to be paying for his wages for three weeks? Anyway, I wrote to the, um, and it was the same name. It was a name that I knew and locally yep. is well known. Yep. So I wrote to the gentleman concerned and said, this had happened on a delivery in his house. This was the driver's name and his address, and this is how much he earned. And he was going to be off for about three weeks. I felt it was appropriate that he should pay for the wages, not looking for anything more, just the wages. Yep. I had a letter back saying, get stuffed, you silly prat. You know, you, you know, <laughs> well, you know, the sort of thing, um, a posh way of saying that, you know. Yeah. And I wrote back again. I said, I know what you have to say, and I know you say that, this has never, ever happened before. And I note that you knew we were coming and you had forgotten to lock the dogs away because somebody was coming. But I'd like to remind you, you had a kidney dressing table delivered about 25 <laughs> years ago. Your wife will tell you all about it. And it was a, a young fella that didn't get bitten, but was badly scared, as was his driver. And it was, oh, I should have locked them away. I'm sorry. It happened then. Now, before we go any further, I would like you to perhaps reconsider your position. <laughs> and I can tell you that I had a check back covering the man's wages. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And rightly so, too. Rightly so. Lovely story. Lovely, lovely story. See, this industry is full of stories, whether they be funny or lovely. There's just, well, it, wasn't there's so many. it wasn't funny for poor Martin. Who well, no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. It wasn't funny not, for but... me at the time, I can tell you. Well, no, no, but that's the beauty of this industry. There's stories all over the place. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. David, thank you very much for giving up your time this morning. I truly appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for being a guest. I sincerely hope you enjoyed episode 24 of Moving Matters. Please rate, review and subscribe in your favourite podcast player of choice and please tell your industry colleagues about Moving Matters. My thanks and appreciation go to David Trenchard of Britannia Leather Barrows for giving up his time to record this episode. Thank you again, David. If you would like to know more about Britannia Leather Barrows and the services they provide, then you will find links within the show notes for this episode and on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. And please, if you have a funny moving story that can be relayed to our listeners or you would like to be a guest on the podcast, then do reach out to me by completing the contact form on our webpage, movingmatterspodcast.co.uk. Well, that is all from me and wraps up our first year of podcasts. So until next time, keep moving.